Hi there. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment and thank you for listening to an important milestone episode. Business Scholarship Podcast was founded in summer 2019, and this is its 100th episode. There are really two key components to this podcast, the guests and the listeners. As the host, I'm just here to ask the questions, so I'd like to thank you as listeners for helping the show get this far. I'd also like to ask you to help out another way. To make sure the show is constantly improving, I'm asking folks to complete a listener survey. If you've got a moment, please head over to andrewkjennings.com survey. That's andrewkjennings.com survey to complete the survey and sign up for a chance to win some Business Scholarship Podcast swag. Thank you, and here's the show. Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Dorothy Lund, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Southern California, and Elizabeth Pullman, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll be discussing their article, The Corporate Governance Machine. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Dorothy, Elizabeth, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. I'd like to start with a broad question. Over the last hundred years or so, what has been meant or what has been assumed to be meant by the term corporate governance? This is Elizabeth here. As long as the corporate forum has existed, Issues of corporate governance have naturally emerged, but the first pinpointed use of the term wasn't until the 1960s, and we trace its rising usage alongside the development and the embrace of shareholder primacy. Richard Eels, a business ethicist, first used the term in the 1960s. He was writing about the role of large corporations in a democratic society, the uses of corporate power and social responsibility. And he advocated for the notion of what he called a well-tempered corporation and called for a theory of corporate governance uh, consistent with the ideals of a democratic society. So that was the first usage. He considered how internal government of the corporation would coordinate the political and economic and social functions of the corporation. And as we point out, the term corporate governance, it caught on beyond these academic origins by the next decade in the 1970s. It could have remained in a dusty corner of the ivory tower, but instead it was thrust into the limelight as thinkers from the political right and left reacted to an era of corporate scandals. Penn Central, one of the great U.S. public companies, collapsed with revelations of bribery. Hundreds of other examples of corporate misconduct came to light and were filling the pages of newspapers. So in that time, corporate governance came to express the notion that limitations on corporate power, misconduct, could come through internal constraints. And different sorts of people were using the term. Ralph Nader, for example, argued that corporate governance should be reformed to tame giant corporations so they'd act in the public interest. Others started thinking about similar uh, topics of internal constraints. Mel Eisenberg published his influential book that argued for corporate boards to play a stronger monitoring role. And then there were thinkers like Michael Jensen and William Meckling that didn't use the term corporate governance, but they published their famous theory of the firm piece around that time, and they injected the economic concept of agency costs into the debate about corporations, arguing that the relationship between shareholders and managers fit that agency relationship where agency costs to be minimized. And then by the early 80s, with scholars like Dan Fischel, there was a normative overlay that came over that 
the usage of the term corporate governance in a way that argued that good corporate governance would be one that maximized shareholder value. What we show is that while at the start of the 1970s, that term corporate governance, which was relatively new at the time, it had initially connoted or referenced like a political structure to be governed in the public interest. But by the 1980s, there were louder voices prevailing about focusing that term's meaning on reducing agency costs to serve shareholder interests. And from there, well, we know the history, of course, of the deal decade of the 1980s and the term corporate governance exploded in use. And it was often being referenced through this shareholder primacy lens in discussions about corporate boards or executive performance, shareholder involvement. And shareholder value maximization, it became really embedded or ingrained in the very notion of what mainstream corporate governance was. So the term corporate governance is relatively recent, and we trace its explosion and use alongside the development of shareholder primacy. As you kind of allude in that answer, history is a recurring theme, and the role of history and the theory of history is a recurring theme in this article. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama suggested that we'd reached an end of history, and by that he meant that American-style democracy was ascendant around the world, and it was unlikely to be replaced by a rival political system. You note in the paper that in 2001, Henry Hansman and Rainier Crackman suggested that we'd reached the end of history for corporate law and that shareholder primacy wouldn't be challenged as a paradigm of corporate governance. Now, the last 30 years of geopolitical history have suggested that Fukuyama may have spoken too soon, but what about Hansman and Crackman? This is Dorothy here. This Hansman and Crackman argument is that we've reached the end of history in corporate law as a result of this widespread normative consensus that corporate managers should be acting in the economic interest of their shareholders. And they argued that we were going to see convergence around a shareholder primacy governance model until all major jurisdictions had similar rules of corporate law and governance. So very provocative argument. And I think history has not actually been so kind to this argument. So, you know, we haven't really seen this convergence that they would have predicted. So just to give you a few examples, in Europe, across Europe, there's still a co-determination model being used in Germany, Austria, Denmark, Sweden, Luxembourg. And of course, co-determination has board representatives that are appointed by employees, not just shareholders. In France, there are employee board observers. Certain other countries in the EU allow the creation of a works council, where you'd have some employee representatives who meet with management to discuss aspects of the business. And even in Japan, we've seen this interesting move away from a stakeholder model, exact opposite of what we've seen in the United States. Initially, there was a stakeholder model that has been a reform and a push to take a shareholderist approach, but the norms have been really sticky in favor of stakeholders. So when Toyota became the first Japanese company to reach a $280 billion milestone in annual revenue, in 2019, the CEO thanked first the employees, the customers, the dealers, and the suppliers, and last came the shareholders. And still in Japan, takeover bids are being evaluated today with regard to employee welfare. So we haven't, again, seen this universal convergence around shareholder primacy that was predicted. And in fact, 
in the United States today, I think there's a lot of interest in various places in moving away from this model, that there's no longer this widespread normative consensus that shareholder primacy is the best model. The project in our paper, though, is to explore, given that there is this interest in a move away from shareholder primacy, why do we continue to be stuck in this narrow framework that it just directs managers to think solely about shareholders? You envision corporate governance with the conceit of a machine. You call it the corporate governance machine. I wondered if we could talk about that. You say that there are three components, the corporate governance machine, law, which we've talked about a little bit, markets and culture. What goes into these? In particular, I'm excited to hear about the role of culture because that's generally not at the top of the conversation. We might talk about law and markets, but would really be interested to hear about all these components with particular interest to my part, at least with the culture component. It's Elizabeth. And stepping back a moment, as Dorothy noted, we aim to write a meta account of U.S. corporate governance in the paper. And we're in this time in which there's lots of discussion among business leaders and academics about corporate purpose, ESG, and various corporate governance reform proposals. We notice there's a pattern to the way these debates take place and the way that reform seems to get shaped. In the paper, we're providing this holistic account of U.S. corporate governance. And we argue that it has three reinforcing components, law, markets, and culture, as you say. And we discuss the key actors within each and show how each component orients corporations towards advancing shareholder interests. For example, in the section on law, we discuss Delaware, Congress, the SEC, and the Department of Labor. By markets, we're referring to the institutional players that participate in the market for corporate governance. That's the actors who create or carry out the body of extra legal rules and norms that really powerfully shape corporate behavior. So in that section of markets, we discuss influential investors such as the big three and other institutional investors, investor associations like CII, industry associations such as the Business Roundtable, proxy advisors like ISS and Glass-Lewis, stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, stock indices like the S&P 500 and ratings agencies like Moody's and Fitch and S&P. So that's law and markets. And there's a lot there. And those of us who are in the system of corporate governance, we're pretty familiar with these actors, but we think it really helps to kind of set them out and to show how each is orienting the greater system towards shareholder interests. And as the culture, that third component, I agree with you, Andrew, I think it's one of the most interesting aspects. And many informal affiliations and institutions are responsible for this, for transmitting the culture of corporate governance in the U.S. And we just focus on, on three aspects of that, professional education, the media, and politics. But culture, I think, is, is probably the most complex of the components. It often gets left out of conversations about corporate governance, but it's very important in transmitting and reinforcing ideas. And academic institutions and business and law schools in particular influence how future corporate fiduciaries are perceiving their roles. For the past few decades, institutions have given the view that increasing shareholder value is the main business objective. And uh, researchers have pinpointed this starting in the 1970s. It tracks with our discussion of the parallel rise of the term corporate governance and shareholder primacy that I was talking about earlier. Those ideas and the principal agent conception of shareholders and managers, it got incorporated into some of the most popular courses in the curriculum in widely influential business schools. And leading finance textbooks started to present shareholder value maximization as the widely accepted understanding of corporate purpose. And then scholars in law and finance began to use event studies of stock price reactions to evaluate governance reform. 
And that further entrenched the shareholder wealth maximization norm because then a governance practice would just be deemed value enhancing if it was boosting the company's share price. And scholars passed down those ideas to future business executives who learned that governance quality would be tied to shareholder value, especially profit maximization. And studies of top law and business schools, they found that classes that teach the purpose of the corporation tend to emphasize the goal of maximizing shareholder value. And that when students enter business school, they tend to believe that corporate purpose is something like producing goods and services are for the benefit of society. But by the time they graduate, they're more likely to think that the purpose is to maximize shareholder value. And graduates in business and law go on to run and advise U.S. public companies from the top leadership spots down to the newest hires. And so those norms get passed along in graduate education. It's enormously influential in corporate decision-making. And we think that's very important. We also discussed the role of media and politics and culture and how those work together to perpetuate shareholder primacy as a governing norm. In that section of the paper, I think this is one of the more interesting aspects. We do note that there may be some way in which culture is in flux at this time. It's one of the elements of the corporate governance machine that we see signs in which things are shifting. Uh, Media outlets are increasingly observing this, that a shift in shareholder privacy is taking place. S&P 500 companies are moving towards voluntary reporting, social responsibility and sustainability efforts. Academic institutions are increasingly coming under fire for just teaching shareholder primacy and are beginning to offer courses in sustainability, ESG, stakeholder models, etc. Students, of course, are more and more interested in this. So it's not to say that we are stuck in a particular time, but we do trace how these components of culture have been very influential in shaping norms towards shareholder primacy. With that picture of the corporate governance machine, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about how the machine works, so to speak, and in what ways do you view it as working well today, and what ways is it maybe not working so well? Great question. It's Elizabeth, and I'll take the first part of the question about how the corporate governance machine works. We describe the components of the system with law, markets, and culture, but then in the paper, we also think it's really important to show how those components are interacting and reinforcing. So we give a few examples that show how the corporate governance machine works. We discuss public company boards, the shift from corporate social responsibility to ESG, and the emergence of benefit corporations. And we think all three of these examples show the components interacting. So for example, with public company boards, in the mid 20th century, in the time of managerial capitalism and before the maturing of the modern corporate governance machine, corporate boards were primarily composed of corporate insiders with the sprinkling of outsiders. But that changed dramatically since the 1970s. We had Mel Eisenberg propose that monitoring model for the corporate board, the American Law Institute endorsed that view in its Principles of Corporate Governance. The chair of the SEC and the ABA Committee on Corporate Laws embraced that view that the chief function of the board is to monitor management for the benefit of shareholders. The hostile takeover wave of the 1980s further solidified that. And then by the turn of the century, with Enron and WorldCom collapsing, multiple players in the corporate governance machine adopted a more stringent independence view um, and requirement for directors. So the New York Stock Exchange convened a governance task force that made a director independence requirements. Congress adopted Sarbanes-Oxley of 2002. It required the SEC to prohibit U.S. stock exchanges from listing securities unless the company had an audit committee that was composed only of independent directors. Proxy advisors have ratcheted up pressure on corporate boards to increase independence with their voting guidelines. So we see 
there's law, markets, and culture interacting over time in a way that took something that uh, varied across companies. And from the 1950s to the mid-2000s, we've gone from having just 20% to now 75% of U.S. public company boards having independent directors. And that's so, even though there isn't universal consensus of empirical support that director independence leads to better board decision-making and oversight. And so we have homogenized practices about U.S. public company boards across very different industries. Our other examples are about the shift of CSR to ESG and the emergence of benefit corporations. And we show how the concept of CSR started in the mid-20th century out of a concern for corporate power and the impact of corporations on society. And that idea wasn't tied to shareholders. But starting in the 1970s, there was more adherence to Milton Friedman's view that the company's responsibility was just to maximize shareholder profit. And that corresponded with CSR getting marginalized and then there being a new direction in the research trying to show that there was a business case for CSR. And by the time you got to the early 2000s, CSR got largely recast as ESG. And ESG was a term that was coined by the United Nations after a conference that was bringing together institutional investors and consultants and regulators and financial analysts thinking about what would be critical for investments and growing markets. And ESG became oriented around risk-adjusted returns for shareholders. So you take something that really wasn't tied to shareholders, corporate social responsibility, and you get to the present moment in which ESG is incorporating stakeholder interests, but it's doing so to mitigate risk and creating shareholder value. And it's about a business case for these ideas. And that's a real sign that the corporate governance machine is at play. And you see the rise of a new form of corporation, the benefit corporation, for anything that isn't just incorporating ESG into the shareholder-oriented model. If you want to do something else, like pursue a dual mission that involves social enterprise, the benefit corporation has been created for that. So the corporate governance machine has pushed out other things into a different form, the benefit corporation, which itself is still designed and oriented largely around shareholders. Hey, it's Dorothy. I'm going to jump in and tackle the normative part of this question, which is, do we think this machine is working well? And and Andrew, I take that to mean, do we like this machine? Is this a good machine? I think it really depends on your perspective. I could see a lot of people, people who are very strong proponents of shareholder rights and very concerned about managerial accountability to shareholders, you might take a look at this machine and say, it's great. You know, this pro shareholder orientation is really important and good. We need these reinforcing components out there, protecting shareholder rights, keeping management strongly focused on their interests. Otherwise, management's going to slack, self-deagle, etc. But I think one potential reason to be a little concerned about this, even from the shareholder empowerment camp, is that... You know, one of the best arguments in favor of shareholder primacy is that, well, we're getting this through private ordering. This is through bargaining. Sophisticated individuals are out there organizing their behavior, doing what's optimal. And the fact that they continue to bargain for shareholder empowerment, shareholder primacy, this really shows us that this is the best state of affairs. So I think our analysis here actually shows that, no, this isn't really coming from arm's length bargaining. Instead, we're getting this path dependence and corporate governance that's really restricting the range of options that public companies can adopt. And this is ultimately eroding in this enabling narrative that corporate law is enabling. It allows participants to come up with the state of affairs that's best for them. And that leads to these welfare maximizing outcomes. So I think our lens here kind of cast 
out on that account. It also suggests that maybe what we're getting is the stuff that can make its way through the machine, which tends to be these one-size-fits-all governance models that are acceptable by these institutional players that make up the machine. Again, whether you like that or not will really depend on your perspective, but we talk a little bit in the paper about some of the evidence that suggests when you have one-size-fits-all governance models imposed on vastly different firms, that can erode firm value. There is some empirical literature that suggests that's the case. So that's a reason to be critical, perhaps, of the machine. And of course, if you are not in the shareholders first camp, if you're, in fact, in favor of a broader view of the corporate purpose, in favor of stakeholders or the public, I think the normative takeaway is clear that this machine is operating as a safeguard and really inhibiting and standing in the way of an attempt to move towards a different model of corporate governance. Dorothy, you talk about one size fits all, and I wonder what impact the corporate governance machine has on innovation and corporate law, whether it facilitates innovation or whether it thwarts innovation. How does that work and how does that maybe shape our expectations for the future of corporate governance? I think this question is a big question, and we touch on it a little bit in the paper. We really think ultimately that this is going to deserve future study. But our take thus far is that the corporate governance machine is going to thwart governance innovation. And I think if you step back and you look at the last several decades of corporate governance, we haven't seen a lot of innovation. And when it happens, there's this blowback from the corporate governance machine. So one of the examples that we talk about is poison pills. Look what happened. You know, poison pills emerge in the 80s in response to this hostile takeover wave. And as they become popular, the corporate governance machine really cracks down. And today, they're virtually gone from all major public companies. We also talk about the example of dual class stock, how companies began experimenting with issuing different equity classes with differential voting rights. And most prominently, these big technology companies, Google, Facebook, Snap. And they had a business reason for doing so. You know, they said the reason for this is it's important for us to have some insulation from the public market so our visionary founder can have the room to focus on the company without pressure from the market. Whatever you make of that, the corporate governance machine said, oh, look, this is a move that is not empowering shareholders. It's actually restricting their rights. And we see from multiple directions, the corporate governance machine clamps down on this practice. So these are just two examples, but I think this is the general arc is when you see something new that's not necessarily benefiting shareholders explicitly, this corporate governance machine stomps it out. So what does this tell us about the future? I think we think here that if you want to see something succeeding, if you want to see a reform in corporate governance get traction, it has to be framed as advancing shareholder value. Two examples of where we've seen this happening that are in the current moment, board diversity. The reason why this is gaining traction is not because we think proponents of this don't say, oh, this is really what's good for society. We need boards to be diverse because this is just the right thing. No, the claim is that board diversity is really what's best for shareholders. And because that claim is being advanced, now the machine can accelerate it, catalyze it, let it happen. And we're seeing it really take off. Elizabeth also mentioned how ESG has become mainstream today because it's been framed as advancing shareholder interest. ESG disclosure, the argument in favor of it is not that, well, hey, the public really needs to know when companies are doing things that are bad on environmental and social dimensions. No, the argument is ESG is really good for shareholders. So that can tell us something not only about how you can get past this machine, but what corporate governance is going to look like, how we can continue to see 
ESG initiatives or takeoffs. Not going to be that we move. We don't think that we're going to move all of a sudden to a stakeholder model of governance. It's going to be that people continue to advance argument, and we could see empirical research linking shareholder value and better environmental practices, better social practices. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? We've learned so much doing this project together, thinking through really where our system of U.S. corporate governance has come from, its intellectual underpinnings of the past few decades, what the components and dynamics are of our system and what the future likely path will be. And I think some of the key takeaways are that we have a vast array of institutional players and dynamics. It's really law, markets, and culture. And often the scope of those gets lost in specific narrow conversations. And yet we see these repeating patterns in which, like Dorothy was mentioning, when new ideas come out or some sort of innovation or different sort of governance practice, we see predictable responses to those. And if you keep in mind the law, markets, and culture that are at play, I think you can better understand them. And you can also start to see that the system that we have that's orienting towards shareholders may be suboptimal. And it may be suboptimal even if you're hoping for a system that maximizes shareholder value. Because when we have this sort of one-size-fits-all and best practices that gets locked into rules and norms and the power structures, then it's possible that we may be missing out on better governance arrangements for some companies. From a social welfare perspective, that's suboptimal. The system that we're in is likely shaping the sort of corporate governance reform that we get. And it's likely in our view that unless we have some kind of big shift to the system, like a big federal intervention that would be paradigm shifting, if we don't have something like that, then the path that we're on is likely some version of a weaker, strong form of ESG being used to incorporate stakeholder interests. And that's important. And that may change, in a sense, what companies do. But it's a version in which that's happening even through the existing shareholderist orientation and lens. And that means that certain types of things will happen and others may not. That's a key takeaway of our analysis. I don't have much to add to Elizabeth's excellent description of some of our takeaways there. I think I'll just echo some of what she said. I think really key takeaways, if you're a policymaker or a former trying to think of if you're unhappy with the system that we have, I think our paper reveals the complexity of that project and the, the stumbling blocks that you're likely to encounter. It also gives you some guideposts for what you need to do to navigate this corporate governance machine. Let's maybe construe shareholder primacy differently so that it encompasses stakeholder interest. And so I think there's a message for reformers here as well, but also just as exactly as Elizabeth said, just understanding that corporate governance is operating in this way, that it has these three reinforcing components. When we recognize that, all of these things start to make sense to really fit within this framework, I think is also just our contribution here. Our guests today have been Dorothy Lund, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Southern California, and Elizabeth Pullman, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania. We've discussed their article, The Corporate Governance Machine, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Dorothy, Elizabeth, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. 
If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.